Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in for Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. So our enemy's mission is also very simple. He wants to, our enemy wants to distract us from giving God glory, from glorifying God. It's that simple. Over the past couple of weeks, Dr. Corbett has been looking at spiritual warfare. We know there is a battle in play and it's being waged in vain, as it turns out. We don't want to be caught in the trap of looking for demons under every rock or expecting them to be the cause for every one of life's misfortunes. So how do we do spiritual warfare to win? Dr. Corbett is exploring this spiritual realm and the battle that's in play in a short series. Let's join him tonight for part three of Spiritual Warfare for Beginners. One of the, one of the things that sustains a, a megachurch is not saying anything too controversial because you have to do the extra mile to make sure you don't offend anybody, to make sure, whoops, <laughs> to, uh, to please people. I heard of a, a pastor who was talking about the efforts that he went to, to and his words, to stay shallow. And uh, he, was, he said, you know, because you get to about five or 10,000 people, and uh, he said, I've learned to stay in my lane. And he said his lane is a very shallow end of the pool, the shallowest end of the pool. In fact, he said it's kind of like that first step you take to get into the pool. That's where we just stay in that lane. And he said by doing that, we just bring people to Christ and we just keep going. Um, and I heard that and I thought, uh, we're not trying to do that. <laughs> we're not trying to do that. And the, the other thing is that we, we don't ever want to be a church where we deliberately set out to offend people. We, we don't want to do that. But neither do we want to be a church that is afraid to, to hold to the truth and to defend scripture. So tonight, as we continue to look, in fact, I want to wrap this, this short series up, one of the shortest series I've ever done in my life. It's Spiritual Warfare for, forget, for Beginners. And I want to look at this, how do we do spiritual warfare? And the subtitle of this for me is really important because the subtitle is that, that we are engaged in a warfare where we are on the invincible side. You can actually be invincible when it comes to spiritual warfare. Now, this might surprise some people who think, well, hang on, isn't our enemy real? Isn't the enemy, you know, really, really dangerous? And we're certainly not discounting that, but that's looking at the wrong side of the war. That's not looking at the, the person who has already given us the victory, and that's Christ. So for us to appreciate what it means to be spiritually invincible, we have to have a look at a couple of things. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to have a look at what the scripture says about being spiritually invincible when it comes to warfare. So Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would, would heed your word and that, Father, it wouldn't just be something that we hear, it would be something that we heed. And Father, may the truth of your word penetrate our hearts in a way that it goes deep. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you brought one of these things, this is called a Bible. 
you might want to just grab Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to anchor a fair bit in there and for those who who want to know where you quickly find these epistles you either go to the search column on your phone or it's uh, go everywhere preach Christ go everywhere preach Christ Galatians Ephesians Philippians Colossians so E for Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6 and it says in I'm going to read from verse 10 and it says finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's, I guess, the first thing we need to understand about God's word. God never asks of us to do anything that we can't actually do. Please, let this sink into your soul, because when it, when it tells us to do things like love one another, when it tells us to be humble, we actually can and we can because God never asks us to do anything we can't do. So we are to be strong in the Lord, which kind of indicates to me it's possible that we neglect those things that make us strong in the Lord. And here is a command to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's why I say we can be spiritually invincible when it comes to spiritual warfare. The next verse, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here Paul is saying we are actually in a battle. There is a battle going on. Now, one of the things that I want, I want us to appreciate is how we read texts like this. Some of you may have heard some pretty fanciful stuff when it comes to that verse. For example, there was a Bible teacher who said every morning he declares that he is putting on the armour of God. He actually says, I am now putting on the armour of God. And then he would visibly look like he was about to put a helmet on and, and he would declare, I've just now put my helmet on. He would visit, look like he's putting a breastplate on and so on. He would go through this ritual. I don't think that's what Paul meant at all, like not even close. The next verse, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In our last session, we talked about the different realms of heaven where there is a heaven where God dwells. It's called the third heaven by Paul. There is the heavens that is just the natural sky, the night sky and so on, where we talk about the heavens. But then there's this second heavenly realm. And the second heavenly realm is this place where there is a spiritual realm. But did you notice all of the descriptions Paul has here of who our battle is ultimately against? It's not, it's not against flesh and blood. That tends that should tell us that it will look like it's against flesh and blood and did you note there's not one reference to a demon and i mentioned this that there are different creatures in the spiritual realm and these creatures paul is describing here cosmic powers spiritual forces of evil 
And these forces are able to manipulate people. And so while it looks like our battle is against political parties or political characters or the like, it may well be against the forces of darkness and the forces of evil that are manipulating these people. So with that in mind, I want to also counter the notion that we should be yelling at these things, as some say, because I, I can say this, that there, are, there is this, this evil force that is, that is manipulating people, often in positions of power and influence, against the purposes of God. And some people, again, fancifully claim that we should be binding and loosing things in the spiritual realm, such as telling the devil that he's bound. And by the way, I think many Christians have done that. And the question is, how long does that last? Because he doesn't seem to stay bound very long. And, and secondly, there are some people who, and I think that's a complete misunderstanding of the passage in Matthew 18. Jesus is not talking about binding and loosing Satan at all. If you have a look at the tradition behind that text, you'll find that in Jewish thought, the law of God had binding laws and loosing laws. And Jesus is saying whatsoever is bound on earth has already been bound in heaven. In other words, God's word comes from heaven. The binding laws, you can't do this, don't do this. They're negative laws. And the loosing laws, you are to do this, do this. It's because this is what God has decreed in heaven. It's not what we decree on earth. I hope you investigate that and, and I, I trust that you'll, you'll recognise that's the case. So our mission is not to yell at the devil. It's not to yell at these spiritual forces. If it was, there would be some indication from the Apostle Paul himself that that's what we do. You would find reference in the book of Acts to him doing that. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, and flesh and blood put Paul in prison. So you would think Paul would then respond. And respond in a way that bound these forces by simply declaring them bound, and the prison doors would burst open. But that's not what happened. And I hope to show you that there is a way to confront this, but that ain't it. So our battle is on three fronts. And those three fronts are generally identified as the world, what's the next expression? The flesh and the devil. The world, the flesh and the devil. So we need to be really clear about this. The world has a system. The world wants you to think in a certain way and it is generally a godless way. Now, Ruby loves to watch Have You Been Paying Attention, which is rather ironic. <laughs> but she loves to watch that program, and there are sometimes, as I've noticed, and it is funny, it's, it's six comedians, and they're all vying for who, who paid attention to the news items that week. But sometimes they do these snide little comments against Christianity. In fact, there's hardly an episode where that doesn't happen. And of course, I, I no longer watch the project because it just it overwhelmed me with anger how often they did it as well. And how often one of the hosts 
does not have his own feet held to the fire because of his particular religious views. That's another story. But the world has a way of engaging in spiritual warfare because they are manipulated. They are being manipulated. And so our flesh is more inclined because of sin, and Paul calls our flesh our sin nature, our flesh is more in line with the enemy of our soul than with what God wants. So there is a battle that we have to go through within ourselves. Within ourselves. That's the flesh. That's why I suspect Jesus said, anyone who would follow after me must take up their cross daily. Not at the time of salvation only, but every day. Every day. Has anyone ever committed to go for a jog every morning? What time? What time in the morning? Seven o'clock? Seven? Did it once. Did it once. That was my point. That's where I was going. That's where I was going. <laughs> because <laughs> on the first day, yes, we can do this. The, on the second day I rested. The second day I rested. <laughs> and the Lord rested on the second day. And <laughs> the Lord of the manor. Um, but but maybe, it's not a, maybe it's not a run that you've tried to do every day. Maybe it's a diet that you've committed to. Or maybe it's, it's something where you've de determined that you will cut something out from your lifestyle. If you've ever done that, you know the kind of battle you go through to, to sustain that. All right, so this is where, this is the battle front. That's where the fronts are. Here's, here's our mission. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, which is an amazing movie with a profound storyline based on true events, where they, one family had lost all their sons except one, Private Ryan. He was the only one left, and the US government was determined that that family would not lose their only surviving son. So they sent a platoon of soldiers, a small platoon, I think of about six soldiers, to go in and find this soldier and rescue him. You know the story, if you've seen the story, Saving Private Ryan. And so all of them lose their lives in the pursuit of saving this one soldier. Their mission was clear, save Private Ryan. And they accomplished it. What's our mission? What is our mission? I want to suggest to you, our mission is incredibly simple. I asked someone, and I'm, I mentor different ones different days of the week and uh, in person, and then I'm, I, I have about five or six of my mentor by Zoom or by phone. And one of the, one of the people I'm, I'm mentoring is, a, is going through the New Christians course, and, and I do that. I've got a couple of guys going through that. And I said to him, Tell me what you would tell to someone who said to you, how do I become a Christian? And he started off explaining the theology of how Christ was this and Christ was that and they would need to understand this and the Bible was this and the Bible was that and they'd really need to get that. And I had to stop him after about 10 minutes. And I had to say, is that how you became a Christian? He said, 
uh, no. Or why don't you just tell them how you became a Christian? Well, no, that was too simple. I just put my faith in Jesus. <laughs> and here's the, and I, so I've got this relatively new Christian and I had to explain to him, just tell him that. Ex- just tell him that. Exchange your guilt and shame for Christ's pardon. Simple as that. And so sometimes we make things way more complicated than they need to be. And I'm going to say, when it comes to spiritual warfare, that you can go into Kurong, and I reckon there's an entire row of books on this, and most of it is nonsense. Sorry, but I, I, I think it is. We can, our mission is really, really simple. It is to glorify God. It, it, that's our mission, to glorify God. You know, every time someone gives their life to Christ, God is glorified. But that's not the only time. Every time we choose to obey Christ and suffer the ridicule of the world in a public setting, Christ is glorified. And I know that because Jesus said it. So every time we choose to obey God rather than give in to the pressure of the world, peer pressure and the like, we're glorifying God. We are telling the world, God is more important to me than pleasing you. So, this is how we do it. Firstly, as a worshipper. You know, the time when you become a worshipper is the moment you give your life to Christ. Giving your life to Christ is your first act of worship. Because worship means surrender. And the person who's never surrendered their life can come into a church and sing and clap and do everything right as far as what it looks like to be a worshipper and still not be worshipping, which is why Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. A truthful worshipper is a surrendered worshipper. So the first thing we can do to really worship God is to demonstrate our surrender to him. And I think singing is one of the most ingenious ways that the Christian church has developed a tradition in doing. I loved what Jenny Hefer said last Sunday. When, someone remind me, it was, what is it? Words convey a thought? Was it? A, what, what, music conveys a feeling? June? June? Remember what she said? You got it written down? It was a profound thought. It goes a word, music, and a song. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. But a song makes you feel a thought. A song makes you feel a thought. Isn't that it? It's just genius. Yeah. Uh, Jenny's, that, that, was, that was profound. It really was profound. Because when you're singing, it's very difficult to be checking your email. It's very difficult to be doing anything else than doing that. But it's just one of the ways we demonstrate our surrender to God. It's just one of the ways we worship God. The other way we give God glory is to be a witness. When we share with someone 
This is what God has done for me. Now think in terms of a court case. And you are summoned into that court because you were there and you saw what happened. You're a witness in that instance. You have one job, and that is to tell the court what? What happened? What you saw happen. That's it. Just t tell them the truth and tell them what you saw. You don't, your job's not there to persuade them. And when it comes to us being a witness, we're going to tell people what happened. And how did someone put it? Once I was blind, and now I see. Once I was lost, now I'm found. John Newton, that's how he put his testimony. Our job is not to persuade. Our job is to be a witness. And a witness is someone who answers questions. Sometimes we think we've got to knock on doors and try and persuade people. But our, and maybe that, maybe that does happen. But we can simply be in a right place at the right time where someone asks us a question, and the question could be as simple as, why are you a Christian? Or, why do you believe that? Or, why do you go to church? Those are questions that you can answer in a witness posture, and it's a way we give God glory. Because imagine if you're the seventh person who's told them the same thing. Random people, and you're the seventh one. You've got to think that stone that's now in their shoe is getting awful annoying. But there's a third way we glorify God, and that is as a worker. We serve. We serve our community. We do what we can in our community. We serve others. We try and help. Part of the sub-motto of our church is helping make life better. We can't make life better, but we can help. We can offer a meal. We could stop by a car that's pulled over because maybe they've got a flat tire and they need the tire changed. Maybe, maybe it's something like that, just acts of service. Jesus said, let your good works shine before men so that my so that your heavenly Father will be glorified. He also said this in John 15, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And the kind of fruit is to do the kind of things that Jesus did, Jesus would do. He would care, he would listen. This week, I met with a much senior pastor, and myself, he came down from Queensland. And one of the things that impressed me about him was his patience. And he just listened and listened and listened. And, and I thought, wow, I've got to take that away. Because he that was, that was amazing. And so he was showing that Christ had shaped his life. Because he, he'd learned how to care. And I want to learn how to care as well. We see in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21 that when the church comes together and we serve each other in the church, and it's, you know, it's got a couple of layers of complexity about it at the moment because of COVID and the like, but the Bible says that when we come together, there is something about that in the spiritual realm that declares the glory of God. 
So we read in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask for or think, oh man, <laughs> according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And in going back up to verse 10, it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. See, it's the same language as the spiritual warfare language that Paul's used in Ephesians chapter 6. So when you're lying in bed on a Sunday morning thinking, should I go to church or should I not go to church? How often have you ever thought that that decision you're about to make is a spiritual warfare decision? Because according to these verses, it is. So our enemy's mission is also very simple. He wants to, our enemy wants to, distract us from giving God glory, from glorifying God. It's that simple. So he will distract us. This is why I'm so upset when I hear Christians say in a prayer meeting, oh God, you know, we've got darkness in our city. So Satan, I bind you and I curse you. And I, I'm thinking, who are you talking to? You've just got distracted. You've just started thinking that you're talking to Satan. Why on earth would you pray to Satan? Why would you do that? And why would, he, why would he be able to listen? That's correct, because he's not omnipresent. Hallelujah. He's not anything that God is uniquely. He's not eternal. He's not omnipotent. He's not, he's not omnipresent. So all of these things, he's omniscient. He doesn't know everything you think. I've heard people say it's, it's better that we Christians pray in tongues because the devil doesn't know what we're saying. I'm thinking the devil probably can't even hear us. So don't even worry about the, whether he knows what we're saying or not. So what I'm trying to do here is, is have us look at Scripture and go, is that actually what it's saying? Is it telling us to bind Satan? Is it telling us to bind demons? Is it telling us to do that? What is it saying? So... Mark chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus said this about the enemy, though. And notice this is in the context of the parable of the sower. So now we're, we're getting a parable which has spiritual warfare overtones. How does it have spiritual warfare overtones? Because he talks about Satan snatching away the seed that was sown. It says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And I think if we did a, a dive deep study, we would realise that Satan can be a catch-all for the meaning all the forces or the forces of evil, any representative of the forces of darkness. Because he's not omnipresent, but there can be a lot of agents of Satan. So snatches it away. So here's the question. How do they snatch the word away? What is it that they're doing? This is where we need to understand spiritual warfare engages most intimately in the area of the mind. 
I want you to think about this. If these forces of darkness are manipulating people for evil purposes, they are deceiving them, lying to them, having them to embrace a distorted view of reality and believing a lie. And where does all that take place? It takes place in the area of the mind. The area of the mind. And can I tell you, the mind is not the brain. To use the analogy, the mind is the pianist. The brain is the piano. Sometimes for those who have an acquired brain injury, there can be a malfunction in the way we think because the piano is damaged. So understanding that, the, the battle that we have is in the area of how people think. And if the lie gets in deep, we are engaged in spiritual warfare, which is why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, I was speaking at a prayer conference on Saturday and one of the speakers a bit later in the afternoon was, was speaking on identifying the strongholds in our city. And I'm, I, didn't, I wasn't there and I'm nervous as to what they said. Because here the Apostle Paul tells us where these strongholds are. Let's read the verse in context. We destroy arguments. or Where do they happen? Every lofty opinion. Where does that happen? Raised against the knowledge, where do you store knowledge? Of God and take every, what? Thought. Captive. To obey Christ. Can you see Paul is saying, in the mind, in the mind, in the mind, it's in the mind where people hold to things they believe to be true when they may not be. So this is where, when we are doing those three things, being a, being a worshipper, being a witness and being a worker, we are engaging in a declaration of God's glory that can deeply sow a seed into someone's mind. And that's the point of the parable of the sower. Because the mind, by the way, is in the soul. It's in our soul, that, in, that immaterial part of us. Now, our, our enemy's weaponry is so incredibly unoriginal. It's so obvious that it might be too easy to miss because it's so obvious. The enemies, if, and, and look, if we go back to the Garden of Eden where the, the man and the woman were, this is what we see the enemy did. The first thing he did with the woman who later became known as Eve is he lied. God knows at the moment you eat of this, you will become like him, knowing good from evil. What a lie. She was already like him. She was already created in his image. He was offering her nothing. It's a lie. The second thing he did, and here's, it might sound like it's the same thing, he was using deceit. Now here's the difference between a lie and deceit, you might, you might have realised this or be pondering this. A lie is a straight up false statement, but a deceit is taking the truth and slightly distorting it. That's deceit. 
It's when you don't say something that you probably could have said that would have changed the whole story. What you've said is not false, but you haven't given the whole picture. Therefore, you have deceived. You've used deceit. Like there's two pieces of the cheesecake shop cake left. Your wife comes to the fridge. I mean, theoretically, your wife comes to the fridge <laughs> and none of them are there. And she says, did you eat a piece of the cheesecake shop cake? I go, no. <laughs> because I... Because because I ate both of them. That's right. I've, see, I've told the truth. No, I did not eat a piece of the cheesecake. I ate both of them. <laughs> and if I'd given the whole picture, it would have been... Uh, you don't want to know what it would have been, but it would have been not good. In fact, let, uh, speaking of this, um, it would have been... The, the, the third thing that the enemy does is death. <laughs> now, think about this. I was listening to Dr Matthew Sleeth who's written a book about suicide called Hope. And he was, an e he was an ER doctor for years. In fact, it was because he was an ER doctor that this atheist doctor became a Christian because he saw his specialty was failed suicides. What a job. And he found that in failed suicides, there were people that encountered Christians and Christians brought a message of hope to these people that completely transformed their lives. And he tells the story of a young man who, and they're called deaths of despair, who, who took a gun, put it to his head, pulled the trigger, and it was a failed suicide. And he ended up being a quadriplegic but in the process, someone shared with him the gospel and the hope that can only be found in Christ and it completely transformed his life. And Dr Sleeth shares this story how it, it had a profound effect on him as an atheist because he realised that in ER medicine, he says, we, we use anything to help. If, if, it's, if it's a bit of cloth, we'll use a bit of cloth. If, if we're, you know, wherever we are, we'll use it to save someone's life. We are desperate to save people's lives. We'll use mould on a bread, he on, on bread, he said, you know, which is what penicillin's made of. He said, we, we, we'll use spider venom to re-kick a heart. We'll do whatever it takes. And he said, I began to find that Christians brought something that nothing I learned in medical school could bring, and it got me thinking. And he became a Christian, and he's an, an amazing Amazing man and a biblical thinker. It's incredible. But he says this in his book on suicide prevention. He says the first suicide in the Bible was when Eve believed the lie of Satan. Because God had said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. She knew that. And she ate of it. So she ate and she made a choice that she would die. And he says, at the root of suicideation, he said, is something that the enemy uses to distort the truth in people. Just a footnote on this. He was asked, what about people who are on medication? He says, if the medication helps, 
I'm an ER doctor, I've just told you, we use anything that helps. And if that helps, stay on that medication. So I want to be really clear about this. But this is how Jesus describes Satan. So note this. This is why I see the fingerprints of our enemy on our culture right now. Because the enemy is doing unbelievable efforts. And it's, 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 un, it's, it's as if black is now white. It's as if white is now black. It's as if up is down. It's like crazy. The, bit, the most compassionate thing we can do for someone is to kill them. It's like, what? Where, where, where did this come from? How is this getting any traction in our culture now? It's unbelievable, literally, for me. That death is now seen as care. So we talk about the woman who's maybe pregnant but can't afford to raise the baby. The most compassionate thing is for her to abort that child. And I think, what? We think about the person who may be quadriplegic, like we, we have a good friend who's quadriplegic and he, he was involved in a motorcycle accident and, and he laments that day. Going too fast, wet road. But he lives an incredibly full life. Amazing. So Jesus described the enemy this way. John 8, 44. You are speaking to the Jews. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's an interesting description of what happened when he tempted the woman. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's lies, deceit, death. Now, our spiritual warfare weaponry is actually invincible. It cannot fail. It cannot fail. And here it is. This is the weaponry that we will look at in closing in a moment out of Ephesians 6. But here's how we would sum it up. It is the truth. That's our weaponry. Our weaponry corresponds with the world we live in. You see, there is a reality that, that it is conveyed in God's word that the world bears witness to. The world bears witness to the fact that the universe had a beginning. This is what God's word says, in the beginning. There was a beginning, in the beginning. The world bears witness to the laws that God has ordained that govern this physical realm, but also the moral laws, C.S. Lewis argues in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity, that there are moral laws. And he calls it the law of human nature. And by that he means the moral law, the laws that tell us what is right and what is wrong. Jesus said this, John 8, 31, 32. You'll hear verse 32 quoted often. You'll see it sometimes on courtrooms, sometimes in government buildings. But they miss the preceding verse because it's only half of the thought. John 8, 31 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, comma, verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's truth that is grounded in Christ's word, not just any old truth like two plus two equals four won't set you free, but the truth that comes from Christ's word. 
Therefore, we proclaim the truth and we pray the truth. We pray the truth. And the truth is, without Christ, you are in spiritual darkness. Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul describes his conversion to Christ and his mission to bring people to Christ as if they are in the domain of Satan, held in the grip of darkness, who need to come into the light. That is how Paul describes conversion. Paul says, now we're coming up the home stretch, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So there may be times when you're under pressure because of these forces, the world, the flesh, the devil. There may be. Stand. Hold your ground. Stand. Therefore, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is grounded in truth, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And that shield of faith is trust in the truth. That's what faith is. You trust the truth with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What are those flaming darts? They are doubts. As Christians, we are not immune to doubt. But sometimes we think the antidote to doubt is more faith. Just hold on. I'm going to come to that in a moment. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hear the truth, truth, truth. Praying at all times in the spirit, which is truth, with all prayer and supplication. Now, we don't quite know what that means, but it won't hurt to pray all kinds of different ways. It won't hurt. Go for a prayer walk. Pray when you drive in your car. Just don't close your eyes when you're driving and praying. Thank you, Wendy. Good point. <laughs> to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And in the last month, I've heard of several testimonies of people who've come to Christ who've had someone praying for them for at least 20 years every day. Every day, 20 years. That's what I call perseverance. And I'm thinking, I wonder if that's what Paul meant when he says, with all perseverance, make supplication for the saints. So the antidote to doubt is not more faith. The antidote to doubt is the truth. Doubt is extinguished, it says, by the truth. You are not loved. That's a lie. Where did that come from? That's not what God's word says. Your life's not worth living. That's a lie. It's a lie. The truth is that I've come to give you life abundantly. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. The antidote to discouragement. I read in... Isaiah 52, I think it is, it says, And he shall not be discouraged. Talking about the sufferings of Christ. I'm thinking, man, I want to hang out with that guy because I'm often discouraged. I want to hang out with him. Why wasn't 
he discouraged. It says in um, Hebrews, was it 12, for the, for the hope set before him, he endured the cross. He was encouraged to, to go to the, the depths of suffering because of the truth. So the antidote to discouragement is not more faith. It's the truth. Therefore, here's the therefore. This is how we battle and this is how we are spiritually invincible. When we glorify God in our worship, in our witness and in our serving of others. And when we do it to the glory of God, when we ground our lives in the truth, therefore, let us further the kingdom of Christ through prayer and through the proclamation of the truth in word and in deed. In word and deed. So would you please stand? Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people that have a passion and a heart and a desire to serve you in all truth. That, Father, you would put in our heart a desire to align our lives with the truth of your word, the truth that you are our Father, you love us, you sent your Son to die for us. So great is your love for us. May the words of the truth of your scripture grip our hearts and shape our minds and be a force field, a shield of faith, a belt around our waist, feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel, prepared in the truth of your word, armed with the sword of the spirit, your word, and that, Father, we would take up that shield grounded in the truth, and that, Father, we could do this winsomely and caringly, because it's true that you love all people and you do not want to see anyone perish. So I pray, Lord, we would be a church that longs to see people come to know Christ, not just in theory, but in reality. And so, Lord, may we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. As we've heard tonight, our battle is on three fronts, the world, the flesh and the devil. Our mission is simple, to glorify God as a worshipper, a witness and a worker. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.